counteroffer, baby. soon 
dreaming Well, of an aspect bright and fair And my sleeping, it was broken But my dream, it lingered near In the fama of shining valleys Where the pure air rarefied And my senses Shower. Shower.
welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, <sighs> it is Friday, September 27th, 2019. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land, and one way folks can give back to the land is if you pay the Shumi land tax. And if you, go to, if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I land tax, it'll be brought to a page of the Segurate Land Trust, and you can find more information about the land we're on. And that's uh, most, mostly in terms of the East Bay, and there's also other whew, resources that I will be sharing uh, during this program. A lot going on in the world as per usual. I'll provide a trigger warning because we'll be talking about the news and what's happening in the world. Uh, And also, there are a lot of folks showing up in a lot of ways. There's a lot of protests, a lot of strikes, a lot of marches, etc. A lot of folks showing up. So wanting to also note that there's a lot of positive things that are also happening in the world and people are showing up in multiple ways. There's a lot of news stories to get to and also have a guest coming in around 1.30, so please do stay tuned for that. Started off with playing some music. It wasn't the initial song I was planning on playing. I've been going through the record collection here at the station and there's a record of Joan Baez covering songs by Bob Dylan. And the first song I thought in my mind when I saw the title I I thought it was Girl from the North Country. However, it's North Country Blues. Totally different song. And after that, there's was a song called Landlord, which definitely intended to play. And then following that is a live version of People Have the Power with Patti Smith and a choir of 250 people and Stuart Copeland uh, on percussion. So that was recorded back in April, I believe. And you can find that on the Boing Boing website. And it's by Choir, Choir, Choir is the name of the group. And that was recorded in New York City on April 13th, 2019. And that's part of the Onassis Fest, excuse me, Onassis Festival 2019, Democracy is Coming, which was co-presented by the Public Theater and Onassis USA. So that's pretty awesome. We'll be playing some more music throughout the program, as sometimes it's good to take a step away from the news, take a moment away just to... Cleanse the palate, as it were. I say that quite a bit. A lot's going on, and just wanting to announce that. I'm also in the process of looking for the links I was planning on sharing, and that will take me just a moment. There's just a, a lot going on. So I do want to say thank you for tuning in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start going into the, the news stories, and then we'll circle back, and I'll share some more resources with folks. Okay. So, starting out, what's first on the list? Uh, SEIUHW on Twitter tweeted that... Uh, uh, this was a few days ago. 83,000 healthcare workers nationwide reached a historic tentative agreement with Kaiser Permanente with big wins to ensure Kaiser is the best place to receive and give care. That's their words on it. And they also provide a link to the United Healthcare Workers West website. It's uh, a four year tentative agreement. 
And that includes strong across the board raises of 3% a year, protected health care benefits, protected retirement benefits, and no two-tier wages or benefits for new hires. It also completely bans subcontracting of jobs to their facilities and strengthens protections against outsourcing work, builds the workforce of the future with $130 million investment funded exclusively by Kaiser to educate and train healthcare workers for tomorrow's jobs with no employee contribution, and waives the work experience requirement for any of them seeking, or us, depending on if you're a member or not, uh, seeking promotion to a new position at Kaiser. So I wanted to share that news. Oh, goodness. I'm going to take a breath here. There's just uh, a lot going on. I also wanted to share a link from Fight for the Future. You can follow them on Twitter at Fight for the FTR. And they tweeted recently, big tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft are calling to regulate facial recognition because they want to skip the debate about whether technology this dangerous and invasive should have any role at all in a free and open society. And there's an opinion piece that was written in BuzzFeed. So I'll read a little bit from that. It says, don't regulate facial recognition, ban it. We are on the verge of a nightmare era of mass surveillance by the state and private companies. It's not too late to stop it. And this was written by Evan Greer back in July of this year, July 18th, 2019. Speaking at a conference two years ago, Microsoft CEO displayed a slide featuring the book jackets of 1984 and Brave New World. I do believe it's up to us to ensure that some of the more dystopian scenarios don't come true, Satya Nadella said. Too late. The surveillance dystopia is on the horizon, and companies like Microsoft and Amazon are helping build it. Despite their platitudes of caution and ethics, we've seen the consequences of Silicon Valley's move fast and break things ethos. And if we don't stop the spread of facial recognition, its latest lucrative surveillance product will soon count our most basic freedoms among the things they've broken. Academics have called facial recognition the use of artificial intelligence to pick out and identify individuals from vast databases, the most uniquely dangerous surveillance mechanism ever invented. And with quickly spreading commercial products like FaceApp and Facebook's Face ID, raising privacy alarm bells, it's easy to see how quickly we'll feed this beast once it's unleashed. And that's why the organization Fight for the Future is launching a nationwide campaign to shine a spotlight on where facial recognition surveillance is already happening and how people can act at the local, state, and federal levels to stop it. Company after company in Silicon Valley has been pushing furiously ahead with the development of face scanning surveillance tools. They see money to be made selling this tech to governments, airlines, and other private businesses. Facing growing concern from the public and lawmakers, the industry has disingenuously asked for regulation. This is straight out of big tech's lobbying playbook, asking Congress to pass laws and then swooping in to help write them. By doing so, they hope to avoid the real debate, whether facial recognition surveillance should be allowed at all. The answer is clearly no. The threat that facial recognition poses to human society and basic liberty far outweighs any potential benefits. It's on a very short list of technologies, like nuclear and biological weapons, that are simply too dangerous to exist, and that we would have chosen not to develop had we had the foresight. 
Silicon Valley, however, continues to forge ahead, bidding on lucrative government contracts that are already enabling surveillance, the likes of which we've never seen. We are on the verge of an unprecedented increase in state and private spying that will be built in plain sight. It will be built in winsome partnership between corporations and government agencies hungry for more data and control. The rich will grow richer, unaccountable authorities will become more powerful, and the rest of us will be subject to deeply invasive monitoring every time we leave our homes. Tech lobbyists acknowledge some of the flaws in current facial recognition products, but promise they can be fixed or addressed with industry-friendly regulation. But even if these algorithms worked perfectly, ubiquitous face scanning still poses an enormous threat to the future of human freedom. Biometric surveillance powered by artificial intelligence is categorically different than any surveillance we have seen before. It enables real-time location tracking and behavior policing of an entire population at a previously impossible scale. Considers, consider Slate's reporting on the algorithms that review security camera footage. They look for triggers, which could include complex and nuanced emotional and cognitive states registered by your expressions. As ominous as it is to imagine a person you've never met watching your every move, comparing you to mugshots and anticipating whether you'll commit a crime, imagine instead software working at top speed and incapable of empathizing with you. It thinks it knows how you feel and what you intend. It doesn't care if you've had a bad day. That look on your face could peg you as an enemy of the state. Any one of us could become the victim of an algorithm's cold testimony. There is no amount of regulation, transparency, or oversight that will fix the dangers inherent in widespread face surveillance. Only a full ban, a federal ban, covering the use of facial recognition by government agencies in public places and in public contracts with private entities can prevent our nightmares from becoming reality. As terrifying as a vision of accurate surveillance technology is, the technology's current shortcomings are scary enough. Facial recognition algorithms systemically, excuse me, systematically misidentify people of color and women as criminals, automating existing forms of discrimination and profiling. The sheer pace and scale at which such targeting can soon occur will lead to increased police harassment and false arrests, filling our prisons even faster with centuries of racism built into the software. Just last weekend, we learned that immigra immigration authorities were scouring state databases of driver's licenses, scanning millions of Americans' faces without any consent in an attempt to locate and deport undocumented immigrants. In some cases, they targeted undocumented people who had legally obtained driver's licenses in states where they are allowed to do so, a devastating bait and switch. The good news is that while facial recognition is spreading at an alarming pace, momentum against it is growing. San Francisco, Oakland, and Somerville, Massachusetts, recently became the first cities in the country to ban the technology. Berkeley is also considering a ban, and, and bills to halt current use of the tech are before, and excuse me, and bills to halt current use of the tech are before the Massachusetts and Michigan legislatures. In Congress, there is growing bipartisan agreement to address the issue, but it could easily stall under pressure from law enforcement and big tech. There is no time to waste. Authoritarian surveillance programs are always used to target the most vulnerable and marginalized, and facial recognition enables the automation of oppression. 
And if you'd like to share this article and or read it again, uh, please check it out. It's at buzzfeednews.com. It is written by Evan Greer, and it was posted on July 18th, 2019. Next up. I am jumping around with news stories today. Sometimes there's more of an easy segue in between stories. Today's not that day. It's going to be a little bit choppy at first, and the world's a choppy place, so I suppose that makes sense. Uh, That's an interesting... So now abortion is legal in New South Wales in Australia. I'm not going to repeat the title that the BBC published because it sounds a bit off to me. However, there was a bill that was passed on Thursday, and it overturned a 119-year law, which had been criticized by opponents as archaic. The legislation has generated weeks of heated debate, and so says the article. And I guess the the state has a very conservative government at the time. Oh, goodness. Well, that's the... That's the the long and the short of it. So, yes. There's that. Very concise summary there. So, obviously, everyone should have access to health care and control over their own bodies. I think that goes without saying. However, we have to say it because this is the world that we're living in. So, congrats to folks in Australia. There's been many, 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 many many climate strikes and marches going on around the world. I've lost track of all the numbers of cities and people who are participating. It's happened here in San Francisco. It's happened many places around the world. I will not do it justice to emphasize that. However, if you want to look online and check out the different cities and countries and places around the world where I'm guessing in total millions of people have taken to the streets to protest climate change and in doing so also blockading banks and the fossil fuel industries, people who donate to the fossil fuel industries. Um, that's been happening. So sending a lot of love and solidarity out to the folks who participate in any way they are able to, to do so. And it really is about boycotting places that invest in fossil fuels and <sighs> encourage and participate in businesses that are terrible for, for the earth. And in addition to fossil fuels, we can also talk about I mean, it's all connected, however, with the military, and I'll keep on harping on that, how the U.S. military is the number one polluter in the world. So I hope that when folks debate and talk, I don't even know why one has to debate science and what's true and what isn't. However, to mention the military-industrial complex and how that is very much a part of how the climate is changing in addition to fossil fuels, fracking all that entire industry, automobile industry. Ugh. Oh, gosh. I am looking down the list of stories. They depress me a lot. However, I, one cannot look away. Ugh. Ugh. There's a story. It's, it's next on the list. So I will get to it and I'll share it. And this comes from the Phoenix New Times, uh, phoenixnewtimes.com. Arizona prison food was labeled not for human consumption, ex-inmates say. And again, this is not a surprise to folks who recognize how barbaric the prison industrial complex is and how it does not, in the grand scheme of things, do anything to rehabilitate people. It actually causes more harm for people. Oh, so, oh, wow, I'm groaning a lot groaning a lot today and 
got to get it out somehow. This article is written by Elizabeth Whitman, and it came out on September 25th, 2019. And the article has been updated with the preferred first name of a former inmate and with statements from Trinity Services Group. Some of the women incarcerated at Arizona's Perryville Prison saw the bright lead bright red letters spelling out not for human consumption on the sides of cardboard boxes containing chicken. Others remembered seeing the label slapped on packages of lunch meat. But all of the women recalled seeing the explicit message at some point on parcels of food during their tenures at the prison about 25 miles west of Phoenix. The response to tips from former inmates, Phoenix New Times, in response to tips from former inmates, Phoenix New Times spoke with six women who served time for crimes ranging from burglary to manslaughter about the food served in Perryville. The women were incarcerated in the early 2000s. Others got out this year. They lived on varying yards and worked different jobs in the prison, but their experiences converged in seeing food they said was clearly marked as not being for humans. The Arizona Department of Corrections denies that food labeled not fit for human consumption was or is served in state prisons, which contract with Trinity Services Group to feed nearly 42,000 inmates. Trinity's history of service to inmates in other states includes food so bad it sparked protests. It has served inmates maggot-infested chow and potatoes laced with crunchy dirt. Lola Levesque entered Perryville at the end of 2003 and was released in 2015. She spent the middle years of her sentence on the Santa Cruz Union. There, it was there, she said, that she occasionally helped unload food delivery trucks and discovered that the rumors floating around the yard were true. I personally only saw it on the chicken legs and thighs that were coming in, Levesque said. She said she knew that the food ended up in the kitchen because the boxes went into a walk-in cooler. Levesque now works as a community-based organizer for Living United for Change in Arizona, or L-U-C-H-A, a local grassroots group. Julie Butler did five years from 2003 to 2008. When she first arrived, she worked in the kitchen. Cardboard boxes of chicken came clearly stamped with, not for human consumption, on their sides, she said. Everybody saw it. We'd ask about it all the time, Butler said. I never got a straight answer. The odd thing was that those chicken parts, usually legs and thighs, looked normal, Butler said, and so she could only speculate as to why they'd been labeled not for human consumption. Eventually, she said, the prison stopped serving it. She did not know where the chicken had come from, and she estimated that during her incarceration, it was served every one or two weeks, usually undercooked. More than a decade later, recent ex-inmates report that the chicken not for human consumption is still served, but infrequently. Instead, they say that items that should not be fed to people but are nevertheless being fed to inmates are the lunch meats. Sierra Bruce, who got out in August, said that the deli meats like ham, bologna, salami, and whose packages said that they were supposedly turkey-based were labeled as not being fit for human consumption. Each slice was inadvertently bagged, and by the time it arrived in the prison kitchen, it was already turning green and reeked of an awful smell, she said. The so-called meat that went into sausages and hamburger patties, she added, didn't look like real meat at all. It was definitely something artificial, Bruce said. She and other inmates had to mix the meat, and meat is in quotation marks, with seasonings to mask the smell. We would constantly be gagging from the smell that seeped out, she added. In February, Amber Corral finished a six-and-a-half-year sentence. Her first stint in prison was in the early 2000s, when she remembered the boxes of chicken came every few weeks. 
This last time around, it came once or twice a year because prison food vendor Trinity had switched to feeding inmates chicken nuggets, she said. One of the occasions it served real chicken was Juneteenth, the June holiday commemorating the emancipation of slaves in Texas in 1865. After hearing rumors of... After hearing rumors about how the boxes of chicken were labeled, Corral grew curious. The chicken was delivered in white box trucks near the canteen in an area that is visible to the women incarcerated there, she said. She decided to investigate. I physically saw the boxes, Corral said, and chicken work, chicken, excuse me, huh, and kitchen workers showed her the label, not for human consumption. The last time she saw those boxes was mid-June 2018, her final Juneteenth in prison. To be honest with you, I didn't really care because it was chicken on a bone, Corral said. Isn't that sad? Bill Lamoureux, a spokesperson for the Department of Corrections, said that the department takes these claims seriously, but that after looking into it, found no evidence to support this allegation. And again, it's that idea that uh, when folks investigate themselves, they don't seem to find any wrongdoing. The department's review included conducting visual inspections, meeting with food service supervisors, and discussing with Trinity Services Group, he wrote. ADC kitchens, including food storage and meal preparation facilities, are subject to routine state health inspections. Meals provided by Trinity meet or exceed nutritional standards, Lamoureux wrote. The embattled Department of Corrections currently faces the possibility of its healthcare system being put into federal receivership for its failure to provide inmates with adequate medical care. Its former director, Chuck Ryan, recently resigned amid long-running stories of failures and mismanagement in the state prison system. The department's current contract with Trinity, a prison food service based in Oldsmar, Florida, began in 2013 for about $40 million per year. The current contract is set to expire in January 2023. Trinity is one of the biggest jail and prison food companies in the country. Its substandard food-inspired hunger strikes in Michigan prisons in 2016 and complaints and a attempted riots in Colorado. The following year, Michigan prison officials found maggots in inmates' chow on three separate occasions. In February 2018, after finding the company $2 million for meal substitutions, delays, and other violations of its contract, Michigan announced plans to end the contract, to end its contract with Trinity, although according to a statement from the company, Michigan continues to source product from Trinity under a new contract. In 2017, three former inmates in Oregon filed a lawsuit alleging that the state's Department of Corrections fed them chicken and fish labeled not for human consumption. A judge dismissed it in July, saying that there was no evidence of long-term adverse health impacts. Trinity was not associated with that case. (sighs) And skipping to the last paragraph, the statement noted that the prison and jail industry is one of Trinity's biggest clients and that every year it serves 285 million meals that they say meet and often exceed state and federal requirements. All right, I definitely rushed through that story. Yikes. Oh, I'm going to take a bit of a music break here, get myself together, and we'll be back in a bit. So stay tuned. And this is a cover I heard recently of two different songs and you can find it also at boingboing.net. Mm-hmm. 
welcome back to the weekly review. Oftentimes I start off the show with a rant and I didn't do that today and perhaps I should have done that because there's a lot on my mind at the moment and I've just been dealing with some really difficult insomnia. I haven't slept through the night in at least a week. It's been pretty difficult and I also haven't. uh, So my meditation's been a little bit off. My sleep's been a bit off. My eating's been a bit off. Everything feels a little bit off right now and that's where I'm coming from. So wanted to share that with the listeners out there. I tend not to talk about my own stuff, what's going on. However, I feel like it definitely affects how I do the show, and I really want to come in and give it my best, and it feels frustrating sometimes when I'm feeling a bit preoccupied and not quite as centered and present as I would like to be. However, hopefully that will change a bit very soon. I did find one of the links I wanted to share with folks as we were talking about land acknowledgments at the beginning of the program, and this deals more with um, the original people of San Francisco, who are the Ramitosh Ohlone. And you can find more information if you go to R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H dot com. There's a history as well as whew, just there's just a lot of information there. So I do want to recommend that folks please do check this out. And there's a lot there's a lot to learn. And there's a lot that. I know we weren't, and I'll speak for myself anyway, that I wasn't taught growing up. And so it's great for us to be able to educate ourselves and acknowledge the land that we're on and the history of it. Moving along, I've got some more news stories for folks. And here's an audio clip I'm playing. It's from a video. And this was shared by at Ash Agony on Twitter on September 25th, and this is uh, protesters taking over the Whole Foods in Harlem, New York City, uh, on the 25th, and to tell people the facts about uh, Mohammed Ba. It's been seven years since NYPD killed Mohammed. Black Lives Matter. And I'm going to put up the audio here. One moment. And... Ah. This was a, a clip, again, that was shared by Ash J at Ash Agony on Twitter on the 25th of, again, of protesters in, at Whole Foods in Harlem. And that's going to lead us to the next story. Uh, and this was a, an op-ed in the New York Times. New York Times has a lot of fucking problems, so I'll be the first to say it. They recently, like, outed a whistleblower. <sighs> that's one of the many issues uh, the New York Times has, has had recently. However, in the op-ed, there's something was published, and if you are unable to access it, uh, due to the paywall, there if you've gone through all of the, um, use up the they only allow a certain number of folks to visit throughout I think the week or the month or however long. It was posted on Reddit, and there's a great subreddit called Bad Cop No Donut, and it's underscores in between all of the words Bad Cop No Donut, and they have posted the text of the article as well, and that's police. The police can't solve the problem; they are the problem. And this was written by Derricka Purnell and Marbury. Stolly Butts. 
And also, speaking of the New York Times, uh, there are a lot of folks who are now boycotting or protesting or canceling their subscription. And something great to do is that if you have been subscribing to the New York Times, to put your money towards independent media. There are local papers, local reporters. There are folks who do the work of reporting what's happening. There are journalists uh, all over, many independent folks who do it for very little money, if money, if that at all. And if you have the funds to support news, please support independent journalists. Okay, on to this article. The police can't solve the problem. They are the problem. 25 years after the infamous 1994 crime bill, too many criminal justice groups are simply reimagining mass incarceration. And again, this is written by Derica Purnell and Marbury Stolly Butts. Ms. Purnell and Ms. Stolly Butts are lawyers. A quarter century on, criminal justice advocates agree that the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act signed by Bill Clinton in September 1994 was a disaster for poor people and people of color and a driver of mass incarceration. Elected officials, policy experts, and academics have recently sought to undo this damage by reimagining public safety, but too many of them are keeping law enforcement central to their vision for reform. This is a fundamental mistake. They are not reimagining public safety. They are reimagining mass incarceration. The reality is this. The police fill prisons. We can't repair the harm that the 1994 crime bill has done by promoting mass incarceration without reducing the size and scope of the police. The crime bill articulated an obsession with punishment and prescribed policing as the cure to a host of of social ills. It provided funding for 100,000 new police officers, $14 billion in grants for community-oriented policing, $9.7 billion for prisons, and $6.1 billion crime prevention programs. The legislation was partly responsible for a 30% increase in police officers from 699,000 in 1990 to 899,000 in 1999. But did the plan work? Oh, Oops. Oh, and funded over 7,000 school officers. Today, there are over 1 million. Ew! Man, this is such a sad sentence to read. Today, there are over 1 million law enforcement officers in the United States. And I say this every week. Imagine if those funds and people were instead... More people who were doctors and nurses and teachers and caregivers and folks who helped people. Oh, goodness. Okay. So there's over 1 million law enforcement officers in the United States. Yikes. But did the plan work? The Government Accountability Office concluded that while there was a 26% decline in overall crime from 1993 to 2000, only 1.3% of the decline could be attributed to additional police officers. The majority of that decrease, the office said, came from other unspecified factors. Smaller studies have found that everything from preschool to job programs for young people decreases crime rates. Approximately 10.5 million people are arrested each year in this country. While a majority of these arrests ultimately result in dismissed charges, their impact is devastating. Being arrested, whatever the outcome, can jeopardize a person's employment, housing, physical and mental health, and parental rights. Politicians promise jail closings even as they increase police budgets and, as a result, arrests. Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York has acknowledged that the 1994 crime bill was a mistake and wants the city's Rikers Island jail to close by 2026. 
Yet New York's transportation agency just announced a plan to hire 500 police officers to combat fare evasion and manage homeless people in the subway. And again, if you have the fucking money to hire police officers, why not use that money to ensure that folks can take the subway even if they can't afford it? They have the money there. That money should be used for resources for helping people instead of criminalizing people. Free public transportation, living wages, and quality housing would be better responses to these issues than increased policing. Nationwide, nearly half the people whom the police arrest multiple times have incomes below $10,000 a year. It's important to put this in historical perspective. Since it originated with efforts to prevent labor organizing and patrol slaves, modern policing has punished the poor. No number of diversity workshops, body cameras, and community policing initiatives will change that. Reformers on both sides of the aisle praised fuckface45, my word, not the article's words, for signing the First Step Act last year as a measure toward ending mass incarceration. The act is a modest, underfunded criminal justice reform package that a coalition of over 150 black-led organizations opposed. Last week, White House economists announced a plan to use the police to get homeless people, quote-unquote, off the street. This direction is misguided. Police officers cannot solve underlying causes of homelessness or other social problems. They can only temporarily manage these issues with punishment and more violence. And even more misguided ideas are being proposed. After a movement against police violence erupted in 2014, scholars, nonprofit groups, and politicians reimagined police officers as youth mentors, mental health professionals, and social workers against the wishes of many police officers. But the police do not help vulnerable populations. They make populations vulnerable. Excessive force is the number one investigative complaint against police officers, and sexual violence is the second. People with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by the police. People of color, people with disabilities, immigrants, queer and trans people, those with mental illness, and the homeless disproportionately experience violence from officers who kill an average of nearly 1,000 people annually. And sexually assault, physically assault, harass, and surveil hundreds of thousands more. Philanthropists and politicians have called for a more community policing, the idea of having police departments develop partnerships with community groups to ease tensions between law enforcement and residents. In the last 10 years, the Departments of Justice included community policing in its consent decrees with police departments accused of misconduct in Baltimore, Cleveland, Los Angeles, Chicago, New Orleans, Newark, Puerto Rico, and Ferguson, Missouri, and Oakland, California. But community policing is an empty phrase. A Washington Post report showed that law enforcement use uh, use of force increased in half of police departments with consent decrees. Asking police officers to strengthen community relationships, including by doing things like playing football with children or handing out ice cream, does not reduce their power to harm anyone. There's hope. Community organizations are working to solve the problems our communities face without putting them in more danger. The San Francisco School Board recently passed a resolution limiting the role of the police on school campuses, acknowledging that law enforcement's presence criminalizes students under the guise of protection. The Oakland Power Projects trains community members in health skills and emergency response practices to reduce reliance on the police and to create the support networks needed to address the issues that cause problems in the first place. In New York, the Audre Lorde Project's Safe Outside the System produces resources for LGBTQ communities to build safe spaces without police involvement. 
Nationally, the People's Coalition for Safety and Freedom is organizing for the repeal of the 1994 crime bill and for a community-driven process to decide how to respond to community-based violence and corporate harm. Systems of oppression like slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration must be reduced and abolished, not reimagined. Police officers who primarily put people in cages are the enforcers of mass incarceration. We must reckon with the reality that the police are part of the problem and stop investing money, power, and legitimacy in them. Derricka Purnell, and you can follow Derricka Purnell, it's at, uh, or the Derricka's Twitter handle is at D-E-R-E-C-K-A-P-U-R-N-E-L-L, is a human rights lawyer. Uh, Marbury Stolly butts is the executive director of the Law for Black Lives Network of Lawyers. And again, this was a published in the New York Times, and you can also read it in full if you're unable to access the Times on Reddit. If you go to the subreddit, forward slash bad underscore cop underscore no underscore donut. The police can't solve the problem. They are the problem. And this was posted yesterday, which would be September 26th. Okay. On to other systematic fucking problems. That's a sub... Oh, gosh, it's a segue. And again, I've made the comment before. I'd love to have a fun show here where I just play music and it's a comedy show and talk about happy things. And also, it's kind of hard for me to, to do that given all that's happening in the world. And I recognize there's a lot of folks who do those kind of shows and they do them very well. And I appreciate that. And that's just not where my heart is. (sighs) And have to acknowledge what's happening in order to try to change things. Facebook is making millions by promoting hate groups as content. Despite a company policy banning hate speech, the social media giant has taken in nearly $1.6 million from hate groups since mid 2018. This is published on September 25th, 2019. And you can find this on readsludge.com. This is written by Alex Koch and edited by Donald Shaw. Facebook has accepted millions of dollars in advertising fees from hate groups and hate figures despite its anti-hate speech policy, a sludge review of Facebook ad data finds. While the social media giant's community standards ban hate speech because it creates an environment of intimidation and exclusion and in some cases may promote real-world violence, the company hosts and profits from pages, some verified, of numerous organizations identified as hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit that has been tracking and reporting on extremism since the 1970s. SPLC defines a hate group as an organization that has beliefs or practices that attack or malign an entire class of people, typically for their immutable characteristics. From May 2018, when Facebook began publishing its archive of political and social advertisements to September 17, 2019, at least 38 hate groups and hate figures or their political campaigns paid Facebook nearly $1.6 million to run 4,921 sponsored ads. Some ads call undocumented immigration in quote-unquote invasion. Others claim that LGBTQ people are quote-unquote evil. (sighs) This is an astounding amount of money that's been allowed to be spent by hate groups, Keegan Hanks, interim research director of SPLC's intelligence project, told Sledge. It reaches a lot of people with some very toxic ideologies. Obviously, that's incredibly worrisome, if not a little unsurprising, given Facebook's track record specifically around these ideologies. Close to $960,000 of Facebook ad revenue came from anti-immigrant groups, and $542,000 was spent by anti-LGBTQ groups. 
anti-Muslim groups spent close to $70,000 on ads, although plenty of anti-immigrant groups are also anti-Muslim. They have a chart here. Hate groups and individuals spend $1.6 million on Facebook ads, and they have the 38 hate groups and individuals that have bought Facebook ads since May 2018. And they have the anti-immigrant groups, general hate, black... They label black nationalists as hate groups. I don't see them as hate groups. Um, they also they label white nationalist groups, anti-Muslim groups, and anti-LGBT groups. Okay. Uh, the ideologies that you've outlined, specifically anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-LGBTQ, have been allowed to spend this money on the platform. Um, on the platform are the exact ideologies that we see Facebook fail to take seriously over and over again, said Hanks. From my perspective, Hanks continued, Facebook is much more willing to take action against these toxic ideologies when it's politically expedient, as in when it will not result in criticism from mainstream conservatives. And these are the exact ideologies that have a lot of traction in mainstream conservatism right now. Because Facebook only began publishing ad information in mid-2018, the company has surely made multiple millions from these groups' advertisements over time. The top spenders since then are the anti-immigrant Federation for Immigrant, excuse me, Federation for American Immigration Reform, which is called FAIR for short, fucking, oh gosh, which spent $910,000 on Facebook ads, the anti-LGBTQ Alliance Defending Freedom, freedom to be a fucking asshole, I guess, who spent $392,000, and anti-LGBTQ Family Research Council, who researches how to be a fucking asshole. Again, using the word asshole, my vocabulary is a little bit, I'm just so angry about all this nonsense. And they spent $107,000, including ads worth $6,850 that it bought for its president, Tony Perkins' page. The anti-Muslim Clarion Project spent $55,000, and the anti-LGBTQ Illinois Family Institute, $33,000, and the anti-immigrant Californians for Population Stabilization. How about y'all stop just fucking having babies and denying people health care? Because if folks had access to reproductive health care, there would be probably fewer people being born if that's what you're actually concerned about, although I'm sure that's not what they're concerned about. Fuck them. Okay, they spent $20,000. We continually uh, study trends and organize hate and hate speech and work with partners to better understand how they evolve. A Facebook spokesperson who declined to be named told Sludge, we are reviewing the content Sludge flagged and taking action against any posts or ads that violate our policies. And they also have like the different groups here. They have a chart. And um, they say America's most influential anti-immigrant organization is, is FAIR. That's the organization we read earlier. And uh, they are, according to SPLC, America's most influential anti-immigrant organization. Its founder, the recently deceased John Tanton, was involved in the white nationalist movement and expressed white supremacist views, writing that... I'm not going to fucking quote his fucking bullshit nonsense. And, ugh, just fucking gross. All right. There's much more information in the article. Again, if you'd like to check it out, please go to readsludge.com. And this was posted on September 25th, 2019. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm having a bit of a slump today. I'm sure reading these news does not help and also have to acknowledge what's happening. Someone uh, shared a song recently that I hadn't heard before. And it was about 
World War One, and let me see if I can see if I can find it here. And I think we're just gonna play music until the guests arrive, so I can calm down a little bit. And as I look for this song, a lot of other songs are coming up. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna find another song that's been in my head lately, and then we'll be back in a bit. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Mutiny Radio. And how about we play that Bob Dylan song I had uh, intended on playing earlier? All right.
There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell. Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck on the rare earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coat. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
And welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined here by Chesa Boudin. Chesa, thanks for being here. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I thought we could start off if you wanted to talk a little bit about what brings you into the studio. It could be pretty much anything, but whatever you'd like to start with. Well, I'm excited to be a candidate for San Francisco District Attorney. The election mm -hmm. is about 39 days away from today. Mm -hmm. And it's a really unique and exciting moment in San Francisco history. It's the first time in over a century where there's no incumbent running for re-election. Mm -hmm. And it happens to coincide with the first time in, in really any of our lifetimes when there's been a broad national consensus that the criminal justice system is broken, that the status quo approach is not making us safer, is wasting tax dollars, and is destroying families and communities. And it's that intersection of San Francisco circumstance with national criminal justice reform movement that led me to decide to run for San Francisco district attorney. Mm -hmm. I think many folks could argue that the criminal justice system isn't indeed broken, but it's working as it has been designed, which is to cause a lot of harm for many people. Right. Two sides of the same coin. It's, yeah. a, it's a question of framing. What we know is it's costing us about 10% of our state budget just for the Department of Corrections. Oh. That doesn't account for local expenditures at the county level. And we know that it's a system of mass incarceration where the United States leads the world in locking people up, 25% of the world's prisoners. And we know that the impact of that incarceration rate is not evenly distributed. It's right. much more likely to fall heavily on black and brown communities, on uh, LGBTQ communities, transgender communities. And um, in San Francisco in particular, we have a horrific problem with racial disparities in incarceration. About 4% of the city's population is black, but more than 50% of the jail is black. And, and that's really one of the most visible manifestations of, of what people have come to call mass incarceration. Yes. Yes. And also we've seen like with the homeless sweeps too, like homeless folks and I think folks with, uh, are mentally ill are also can be victims of police violence quite a bit as well. We've yeah, seen. We, we've seen over decades of increasingly tough on crime policies, an approach that really criminalizes poverty, mm -hmm. criminalizes mental health, uh, and criminalizes drug addiction in ways that are not only inhumane and uh, wasteful of resources, but also actually undermine public safety. And my campaign right. is really all about bringing um, a new, fresh approach to criminal justice, one that takes a broader view of the context in which crimes are committed, mm -hmm. and that focuses on trying to prevent crime and heal the harm that crime has caused, rather than simply punishing people right. who've committed a crime. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading a, an op-ed earlier that folks had written about how police are sometimes brought into the ideas to solve the problem, but they end up causing more of the problems. One of the things we see, that's exactly right, You know, one of the things that we see especially in high crime neighborhoods and in heavily policed neighborhoods in San Francisco and across the country is that many people who are victims of crime, whether it be domestic violence or shootings, hesitate to call the police to report crimes because of their fear, in some cases of retaliation, mm -hmm. but in many cases, fear that the response by the police will actually re-traumatize them or create more problems than they're suffering at the hands of their abusers. That's something we need to change. And it has to start with restoring the integrity of the police department, restoring and rebuilding the trust between communities and law enforcement that's sworn to serve and protect those communities. I, Pardon me, I'm a little bit skeptical of 
being able to, if the if it's systemically, if police have been brought in to, in many ways, protect property and wealthy folks, is it possible then to even save that institution? Is and is it even worth saving? Well, so I think that's that's the challenge is to find ways to make sure that our law enforcement is not just working. For, to benefit and protect the few, mm-hmm. but it's actually working for all of us. So I've dedicated my life to ensuring that the criminal justice system be- benefits everybody, protects everybody, mm-hmm. not just the rich and powerful and yeah. the well-connected. And we know that in San Francisco as across the country, all too often, whether you're a crime victim or whether you're someone who's accused of committing a crime, the quality of justice you receive depends on the color of your skin, mm-hmm. what zip code you live in, mm-hmm. and how much money you have in your bank account. Right. And that's gotta change. And that's why I'm running for district attorney. Cool, great. So what got you interested in uh, deciding to pursue this path? Well, let me take you back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. When I was born, yeah. my parents uh, dropped me off at the babysitter. I was about 14 months old. Mm-hmm. And they had it off for the day, told the babysitter they'd pick me up that night, Mm -hmm. but they never came back. While I was at the babysitter, my parents participated as unarmed drivers in a tragically bungled armed robbery that Mm -hmm. left three men dead. Mm -hmm. Those men had families, had children. Uh, Those families were torn apart by the crime my parents participated in. Mm -hmm. Even though my parents weren't killed or physically injured that day, our family was also torn apart because of the crime my parents committed. My mother ended up serving 22 years in prison. Mm. My father is still incarcerated. Mm -hmm. He may never get out. As a result, my earliest memories are going through steel gates, waiting in lines of mostly black and brown women and children, Mm -hmm. just to see my parents, just to give them a hug. Years, decades now, of visiting my parents in prison taught me some hard lessons about how broken our criminal justice system is. Broken for victims of crime who have so little to show Mm -hmm. for the billions of dollars that we invest in punishment. Broken for the people who've been convicted of crimes, who go to what we call the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. but where we know no one is being corrected or rehabilitated. And we have recidivism rates of above two-thirds in California and even higher in San Francisco County Jail. Mm. And of course, the system is also broken for the communities where crimes are committed because those communities are being torn apart. Instead of investing in education, building new schools and universities, Mm -hmm. California has focused for decades on building new prisons. Instead of providing equal justice, Mm -hmm. we've got this horrifically discriminatory system that undermines public safety called money bail, which I'm proud to say I've fought for years Mm -hmm. to end. Um, And it's... It's uh, those kinds of problems that I saw firsthand growing up, day in, day out, going into prisons to visit my parents, um, receiving phone calls from them on recorded Department of Corrections Mm. phone lines, and thinking about how little punishing my parents was doing to heal the harm that they had caused. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's that's that's sort of the life journey that led Mm -hmm. me to decide to become a San Francisco public defender. Mm-hmm. As a public defender, I represent people who are too poor mm-hmm. to hire their own attorney to make sure that they also have equal justice. Right. As San Francisco's next district attorney, my goal is gonna be really similar in some ways, to yes. make sure that everybody in this city, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how well-connected they are, mm-hmm. has equal justice under law. Yes. And I've been hearing about a few other district attorneys uh, across the country who have also, like there was Tiffany Caban, I believe, in in New York, and there was also was a 
person in, I think, Pennsylvania, like Larry Kresner. Yeah. Yeah, this is part of a national movement. Mm -hmm. um, you've named a couple. Um, Tiffany Caban came within 55 votes of, yeah. of winning her race. Yeah, really I'm disappointing. I had announced that because initially I think at first they reported that she had won and Correct. I reported it on the show and then I was sad to learn that was not the case. Correct. It, you know, it was one of those situations where uh, she was ahead by over a thousand votes mm -hmm. on election night. Yes. And then, you know, the machine was against her from day one. Yes. And yes. she was running a grassroots campaign. Um, it was really people powered. She never had the, the fundraising or the institutional support. Mm -hmm. And when they did a recount, um, they magically found enough ballots that and, and threw many of hers out to where she ended up losing by 55 mm. votes. But I'll tell you, you know, her uh, election and her movement mm -hmm. has inspired people around the country. Yes. Um, it certainly yes. has energized our campaign, mm -hmm. helped generate volunteers for our campaign here in San Francisco. And I'm really honored to be supported by not only Tiffany Caban, but as you mentioned, Larry Krasner, mm -hmm. the elected district attorney in Philadelphia, as well as Kim Fox. Oh, yes, in Chicago. In Chicago, yes. exactly. And Rachel Rollins in Boston. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the people who are really leading our progressive criminal justice reform movement, mm -hmm. who are finding creative ways to reduce mass incarceration, mm -hmm. reduce racial disparities, mm -hmm. increase transparency and accountability for police and other law enforcement agents while keeping our community safe. And I'm really lucky to have their support and to be able to work with them mm -hmm. on implementing um, successful policies that they've modeled in their jurisdictions here in San Francisco starting in January. That's great. So what if so if folks are interested in like helping your campaign, are there ways people can volunteer and or help to get the word out? Absolutely. Um, we are a grassroots campaign mm -hmm. and we depend on people power, creativity, energy, um, you name it, it's really coming from our volunteer base. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things people can do uh, depending on their skills. We'd love to have people phone bank, knock on doors, um, help out around the campaign headquarters, social media. Mm -hmm. um, the best thing to do is go to our website, www.chesaboudin.com, C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. That's C-H-E-S-A. B-O-U-D-I-N.com. You can sign up to volunteer. You can sign up to have a window sign delivered to put in your window. Oh, yeah. We'll put uh, one up here. Oh, great. Yeah. I think I think we have one. Uh, we can we can leave with you at great. the end of the show. Um, and there's lots of other ways people can get involved. So mm -hmm. we, we'd love to have support. And, you know, we really look at this as more than just an election campaign. We're, we're building a movement, um, and it's going to continue. The organizing and the grassroots energy has to continue after Election Day. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we're going to effectuate the kinds of changes that we're committed to. Excellent. Yes, I believe um, I saw you. I I've, have volunteered a bit for Shahid's campaign, and so I, I believe I saw you at the farmer's market. Uh, That's right. I think we were at the, in the inner sunset, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a great farmer's market. I've lived uh, in the outer sunset for many years, mm -hmm. and uh, so the, the inner sunset farmer's market is, is close to my home, always been one of my favorite locations, and we have a lot of supporters in that neighborhood, so I'm always happy to go and, and uh, get a snack and talk to voters. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to share? We do have some more time. However, I know you're on a, a time crunch. so Yeah, no, I appreciate that. There are a couple specific issues I'd like to talk about mm -hmm. that are real priorities for me in the campaign and also a couple things that I'd, I'd like to share that I'm proud to have worked on over the last few years. Because yes. I think when it comes to deciding who to vote for, mm -hmm. for me personally, one of the most important things is not just the rhetoric that someone uses or the promises that they make, but also the track record that they have. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
you know, the reason I've been able to uh, build such a big movement and, and have so many volunteers is really because of my life's work. The perspective that I bring mm-hmm. as someone who's had parents in prison and who's worked every day in the Hall of Justice for so many years, uh, but also because of the work I've done. And, and, you know, one of those projects that I've led is around money bail. And I mentioned that earlier, but, mm-hmm. you know, San Francisco and, and all of California has a system where a wealthy person can buy their way out of jail, mm-hmm. no matter how dangerous they are. Mm-hmm. While a poor person who may be wrongfully arrested, wrongfully accused of a low level crime with weak evidence against them will languish behind bars simply because of their poverty. It's a system that is both discriminatory and also undermines public safety. Mm-hmm. And so for many years, I've led litigation efforts in state court. We now have a case pending before the California Supreme Court. And in federal court, where I've won um, reversals of local practice from more than five different federal judges that have agreed with our argument that this undermines public safety and that this is something which discriminates explicitly, violates equal protection, Mm -hmm. violates due process. As district attorney, I'm committed to ending money bail, Mm -hmm. to never allowing my staff to put a price tag on freedom. If someone is too dangerous to be released to the community, then the fact that they're wealthy doesn't make them safe. Mm -hmm. And if someone can safely be released with appropriate conditions, the fact that they're poor should not be an obstacle to allowing them to go back to their family and community. Of course, yes. Now, there's another area that I think today with the racist Trump administration is more important than ever, and that's immigration. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration is using xenophobic nativist policies and rhetoric Mm -hmm. to divide this country. It's using hate for immigrants as a way to drive a wedge between communities Mm -hmm. and to scapegoat. It's a tremendously dangerous time across the country because of that really uh, scary approach that the Trump administration is taking. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be the only candidate in this race who has a long track record of pushing back against ICE, standing up for our immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've committed to creating an immigration unit Mm -hmm. in the district attorney's office once I'm elected. And let me tell you why. When local law enforcement cooperates with ICE, it undermines public safety. Mm -hmm. It distracts our resources that we need to be spending on local law enforcement priorities. And it undermines trust in immigrant communities Mm -hmm. and makes it less likely that immigrants who are victims of crime or who are witnesses to crime will come forward and cooperate with local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. If we want to provide equal justice, if we want to protect everyone in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. we need our immigrant communities to know that we have their back, that we will never cooperate with ICE. And I'll tell you, back as recently as 2012 and 2013, San Francisco still handed people over to ICE. Yep, yeah. I mean, if you got arrested as an immigrant in San Francisco and taken Mm -hmm. to jail, at the end of the case, even if you were acquitted of all charges, even if the district attorney decided not to file charges against you, Mm -hmm. the sheriff would hold you until ICE came and picked you up. Now, I had a client in that situation Mm -hmm. back in 2012. She was a grandmother from El Salvador, charged with shoplifting Christmas presents from The Gap for her grandkids. And at that time, everybody said, there is nothing you can do. She's going to get deported. She's going to get handed over to ICE. And I, you know, luckily, I've been to El Salvador. I've lived in Latin America. I mm-hmm. speak fluent Spanish. And I begged her to give me time to not listen to or accept that 
this was a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. And I built a coalition. I worked with immigrant advocates across the city. I worked with her family who played a leadership role. And we persuaded the sheriff that he had not only the legal power, but the moral obligation to stop cooperating with ICE and to let her take responsibility. She pled guilty to mm -hmm. shoplifting and then go back to her family and her grandkids. Mm. After that case, we did it again and again until we persuaded the sheriff to institute a policy. And ultimately, the Board of Supervisors passed a few months later a sanctuary city policy that mm. I'm proud to say I'm going to continue to defend as San Francisco's next district attorney. Great. Yeah, that's crucial. That's the track record um, that I've got. And here are some of the things we're going to do in keeping with that track record mm -hmm. once I'm elected. First, treat mental illness before crimes are committed, mm -hmm. not wait until people commit a crime and go to jail. Today, San Francisco's county jail is the number one provider of mental health services. It's mm -hmm. a disgrace. Mm -hmm. It's ineffective. It's inhumane. And perhaps worst of all, it guarantees that we're going to have more victims of crime because we refuse to address the root causes until after someone is victimized. Right. That's got to change, and it will on day one when I'm district attorney. Second, we need to treat survivors of sexual assault with dignity, and that starts with testing every single rape kit. Mm -hmm. When someone has the courage to come forward after a sexual assault, submit their body to an invasive evidentiary gathering process, mm -hmm. cooperate with law enforcement, and then have law enforcement say, we're not going to even bother to test the evidence. We're going to let it gather dust in the evidence room shelves. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening today in San Francisco. That's what's been happening in San Francisco. And it will change when I'm district attorney. We will test every rape kit and treat survivors of sexual assault with dignity. And I'll give you one last example of something I'm committed to doing. Mm -hmm. Today, victims of crime are largely excluded from the process. Mm -hmm. Often, they never hear from the district attorney's office until and unless they receive a subpoena in the mail. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be the only candidate in this race to have committed to requiring my staff to contact every victim of every crime within 48 hours, to give them a voice and to give them the right to participate in a restorative justice process that can help heal the harm that they've suffered instead of just using them to punish the people that have harmed them. Wow. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing that. It's my pleasure. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited about the possibility of working uh, with so many of the people in San Francisco, the community groups and organizations that yes. endorse me, the labor union, mm -hmm. the community activists um, who are part of this movement and who recognize that we can do a much better job keeping our community safe and treating people with dignity. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for your time and, yeah. uh, and enjoy the rest of the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks to Chase Aboudin for being here. We're going to take a bit of a music break and then wrap up the show in a little bit. Thanks so much for tuning in to Mutiny Radio. And back in just a bit.
Big thanks to Chase Abudin for coming in. That song was just Little Bird by Amarasu. And playing another song, and then we'll be out of here a little bit early today. Thanks so much for listening in. Next week, 
I hope I'm more well-rested, and we'll have another show for everyone out there. Thanks again so much for tuning in. If you'd like to, please donate to Mutiny Radio. If you go to mutinyradio.fm, you'll find the link there. We also have slots available if you'd like to do a show here of your own. And do check out the programming. We have shows here every day of the week. And the space is also available for rentals as well. If you'd like to donate to this show in particular, that would be really very very much appreciated and big thanks to all the patrons out there who do support the show to help pay for the monthly dues if you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev you can check out the information there as a way of supporting the show anywhere from a dollar a month in or more super helpful thanks again for tuning in thanks to chase abudin for being here and we'll be back next week uh uh, oh 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 Uh, (laughs) uh, 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 yeah a lot on my mind okay there is an event tonight, and that is the Sunrise Movement and Rebecca Solnit are going to be at 770 North Point Street um, to talk. Um, uh, there's a climb. Oh, goodness. Okay. There's a today's like the last day of the global climate strike. And so there's an event again that's happening with Rebecca Solnit tonight at 770 North Point Street around 630. And so folks can go check out that event. There we go. All right. Here's some music. And uh, let's, uh, oof, I'm going to calm down a little bit. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll be back next week. Is anybody home? Well, you know.
We fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers. We're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Harris, Harris Law Firm, LLP. 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for Let's Watch a Full Length Movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch
nine months ago, a small hand-wrought baton began a journey in John O'Groats, Scotland, packed tenderly into the crusty saddlebags of some adventurous next to her underwear and can opener. At present, the thing is several time zones away, but on its way to San Francisco next month, Friday, October 4th, we will be celebrating its arrival with a party at Moto Guild on Treasure Island. Join us in welcoming the baton and her bearers, the Women's Riders World Relay to Northern California, making its way back to Europe via everywhere from the furthest reaches of six continents, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Oceania, and on its way across North and South America, igniting a global sisterhood of inspirational women to promote courage, adventure, unity, and passion for biking. There'll be music, food, entertainment, neat bikes to look at, stories to swap, art to ogle, purchase, and people to meet. Everyone is, of course, invited to bring the whole family. Family admission is free, but bring a few bucks for food, bevies, a raffle, and cool stuff from vendors. On Friday, October 4th, San Francisco will be celebrating the arrival of the Baton in California at Moto Guild on Treasure Island from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Come celebrate your love of the motorcycle and the women who ride them. For more information on the party and other awesome motorcycle-related tidbits, join the Dames Don't Care Motorcycle Collective on Facebook for lots of Info on the relay, visit womenridersworldrelay.com. Hope to see you there at Moto Guild on Friday, October 4th with Dames Don't Care. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. 
counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counteroffer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. the reverb yeah we were we were a little hot a little hot coming in coming in hot coming in a little spicy there you go uh what 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 is this g money and wostein 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 we'll, we'll go with we'll, we'll, we'll go with wostein for now wostein for today 
Okay. Hey, we are... Um, Tasting wines we today. We are celebrating our two-year anniversary of this damn podcast. Of ours. Woo! That's cool, man. I I'm know, excited. Right? That's fucking cool. Can you believe it's been two years? Yeah. Man, I can't wait for year three. <laughs> oh, man. It's been two years with this bastard. Yeah, man. With me. Uh, I know. Can you believe it? Oh. Royal we Cuckoo. Need, we, need to try this. We, need, we need to try this again a little bit more. You going to fuss with the Morgan? Okay. No, 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 we're not fussing. We're not fussing around. We are not fucking around with the Morgan. The Morgan is where it's at. I always get these little spitfuls, but it's all dude, good. Pour yourself, pour yourself. Yeah. Pour yourself a glass, dude. Fuck yeah. Let me get a glass of this motherfucker right here. There you go. There you go. That's a glass of there wine, goddammit. Fuck off. Ah, oh, man. Morgan. Oh, baby. You know, I introduced my uh, my sister-in-law to uh, Morgan 